It's my duty to call you back uh, to the Sakpa session entitled The Art of Living Together, How Parasites Shape Our World, presented by Dr. Doug Colwell. Uh, I'd like to remind you that um, next week the topic is International Women's Day, Assessing Women's Status in Canada, Past, Present and Future, is gender equality being achieved? And the speaker is Auburn Phillips. So that's next week. Uh, it's my duty and my pleasure to, to thank uh, Country Kitchen for the wonderful meal yet again. No sandwiches, Gordon Campbell. No sandwiches anymore. No, no, we're, we're living high, high off the hog now. And we thank you for not serving liver. Uh, <laughs> And we also thank the University of Lesbridge for their administrative functions with respect to SACPA. Um, and with those duties, I think I can proceed uh, to... Oh, I can remind you that uh, future and past topics are on the website. And if I now ask uh, Dr. Colwell to come up and take questions from the audience, whatever it might be... Uh, I will just remind you, make the question short so that we can hear more from him. <clears throat> okay, so off we go with the first one, please. Um, Thank you, Klaus. Please be gentle. Doug, my name is Ralph Hemsel, and I'm bursting with a question, which is, can you tell us, uh, in a simple way, how that exquisite life cycle of the liver fluke was discovered? Oh, how it was discovered? Oh, that one's, that's a fascinating story in itself. Um, it took until the 19, the parasite was first described in the late 1800s. And um, they, the original assumption was that there were two parts of the life cycle. There was the adult stage, and then the snail was the, was the next stage. And somehow or other, the, the stage and the snail got into the, adult, into the animal. It wasn't until 1951 in upstate New York that two guys um, got together. And there's a thing called Koch's postulates in bacteriology where you have to be able to um, make the connections between each of the different phases of a disease. And that's what these two veterinarians did at Cornell. Was They, started, they, they, they couldn't infect an adult sheep by feeding it snails. That just didn't work. And, they, and then, so they... They started looking around at more things, and I don't know all of the details about how it exactly it is. They finally figured out it was the ant that was involved, and you had to have all three of those phases involved. But it took people with some imagination and probably a whole bucket full of luck. You can't overlook luck. <laughs> My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you, uh, Doug, for, for an enlightening uh, delivery. Um, recently, we've had a huge increase in autoimmune diseases amongst children in North America. And this has spawned some uh, research around the world, and in particular in England. They've just come out recently with some interesting findings about parasitology. Uh, they are attributing the difference between uh, the amount of uh, autoimmune disease in Africa, for example, to the, uh, the amount in, in uh, North America, to the fact that uh, we live so cleanly 
that we don't have enough parasites, and uh, they're attributing the, uh, the, this terrible increase that we have to lack of parasites. Do you think that's plausible? That uh, there is that theory out there called the health hypothesis, which says exactly what you outlined. Um, there, there's there's um, probably very little question that that being exposed to parasites helps to train our immune system. Um, and uh, somebody asked me at the table during lunch. Uh, there there is a uh, program, and in fact, I think they're doing it in the United States right now. Um, a lot of inflammatory bowel disease is basically an autoimmune issue. And they're using a pig parasite, infecting people with a pig parasite, and it gets helps alleviate the irritable bowel syndrome and Crohn's. And it's, it's partly because the parasite resets the immune system and gets rid of the inappropriate response, which generates the inflammation. So um, I, I tend to be one of those people that, that, that looks at that health hypothesis as one that's got a lot of applications, and it's probably one of the issues. Bacterial exposure, too. They've done, they've done some studies in France with children living in dirty environments versus living in clean environments, so living in town or living on a farm. And the incidence of allergies is lower in those children that live on farms. Yeah. Terry Shillington, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, as a dog lover, I couldn't care less about cats, but uh, <laughs> uh, within reason. But I wonder if you could comment on parasites that affect dogs, and are there parasites that are part of the, uh, the healthy balance of a dog? The, I, I guess I'm going to come at that from the perspective of do dogs have things that, that are noxious to people? And yes, there are some uh, roundworms that dogs have that are infected with that, that can cause human issues. Um, the other component I saw in your question was, was should we deworm dogs regularly? And um, in, in terms of preventing, am I correct in going that direction? Oh, Okay. Um, because there are some nematodes, roundworms, that, that are transmissible to humans, it makes, a, it makes a fair amount of sense to make sure that dogs are regularly dewormed. Um, dogs get pinworms, but they don't transmit to people. You can usually tell when your dog has pinworms because they're squatting on the ground and scratching the itch, so to speak. But did, did that come close to what you were looking for? <laughs> People get pinworms too, and that's even more interesting. <laughs> shall, I, shall I ask the question? If we scratch on the ground, <laughs> uh, Mary, Mary Shillington, thank you, Doug. I appreciated uh, not only your information but your sense of humor in presenting it. So thank you. Uh, we got thinking about this toxoplasma uh, parasite and and thinking, okay, how would we know as humans uh, if we're, you know, have a car accident, is that related to any parasite or is that just because we weren't paying attention? Uh, and the aggressive personality changes and so on. So how, how, how is it being noted? How, how do people know if something's going on like that? How is that diagnosed and uh, that kind of thing? Okay, um, diagnosis in humans is done by detecting antibodies to the toxoplasma in your system. So they'll draw a blood sample and, and test for antibodies. What that tells you is that, yes, at some point in time, you've been exposed to toxoplasma. Looking at 
whether toxoplasma exposure is related to changes in behavior is, is it's a little tenuous because they'll test a, they'll test a cohort of people and say, okay, uh, 75% of these people are positive for toxoplasma antibodies. And then they'll go back and look at driving records, for instance, and, and, and uh, look at the number of times the infected people have had accidents versus the number of times the uninfected people have had accidents. So it's a correlational thing. It's not a... Um, and you have to be very careful with correlational things because those two things occur together doesn't mean one caused the other. So there's... there's and, and that's why I talked about dopamine. You can, you can have these correlational things. You can say, ah, they're positive and they have aggressive behavior. Then you have to look for a mechanism that might explain that. And that's where the dopamine becomes very important because now you have a mechanism. And you can look for connections there as well. Thanks, Doug. That was a great talk. Um, yeah, it's interesting to eat after watching your slides. <laughs> Um, so it's it's interesting that the parasites, the hosts have have to eat the parasites in each case, and that somehow the parasites then go through the gastrointestinal tract and uh, still can parasite the host. And and I've actually had parasites in in the developing world <laughs> where I was the host, the unhappy host. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the. Um, the flukes and the uh, toxos, and how, how they can come into our gastrointestinal tract and, and not be eaten up by our digestive system. That's a, that could result in uh, a long lecture, but um, the, 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 the parasites, once they get into the gastrointestinal tract, they're, they're, they're dynamic multicellular organisms, and they have surface features that they change regularly so that they can shed off the attack of enzymes, for instance, in your gut. Um, so, you know, that, that, that part of it's relatively straightforward. Also, the relatively short period of transit for liver flukes, anyway, they don't, they don't spend a long time in the gut. As soon as they're released from those little round cysts I showed you, they beeline straight for the, either the bile duct or they go right to the gut wall to get out. And so the only thing, you know, they're, there's a certain percentage of mortality. Not everybody survives. Um, we just completed an experiment with this liver fluke uh, a few uh, two months ago and we gave each of our experimental hosts 625 flukes those little round balls in the case of sheep we would get 20 percent of those in the liver surviving in the case of cattle we got even less than that but the point is that there's a fairly dramatic attrition rate not everybody survives but enough survive to keep the thing going Yes, you've been gentle. Thank you. Knut Peterson is the name. Uh, Doug, I was just wondering, I'm not a violent person, but I'm going to ask you a question that involves violence. Uh, you hear about the chemical warfare, biological warfare. Is there such thing as uh, parasitic? Or is that the right word? Warfare? Now I've got to think about that one for a minute. Um, it's uh, it's certainly been done on a small scale, um, not usually with murderous intent, uh, not on a large scale that you would consider uh, warfare. Um, most 
parasitic diseases are relatively easily controlled with drugs. And so it, it, uh, if you know you've been in, assaulted by a, a parasite that somebody wants you to be assaulted by, it would be relatively easy to kill it. Um, that's a really intriguing question. You're gonna, I'm going to spend a whole lot of time checking that one out tonight. <laughs> Uh, and, and as a consequence, uh, it's an interesting question, but I don't have a, I can't think of an example right now where parasites have been used as a tool of war. Hi, it's Lorna Brown. Thanks for your lecture. Um, one of the questions that we came up with or asked about is, uh, is it possible in the liver of, say, liver of the cattle, uh, if you eat them, and it, do, can you pick up the liver fluke that way? And the other thing is, um, when we were overseas years ago, they talked about getting a liver fluke through the skin. If you paddled in uh, polluted water where the snails that are the host uh, are, um, can, I, can you tell us a little more about that? Okay. Um, eating a liver infected with liver flukes will not generate an infection in humans, um, particularly if you cook the liver properly and use lots of garlic. You'll be okay. <laughs> um, a lot of people are falsely diagnosed as being infected with, with dicrocilium in particular because they will eat a liver that's been infected. And, of course, di they digest the worms in the liver and, and eggs show up in their fecal samples. And so you say, ah, he's positive, but you, you, can, you can rule that out quite quickly. Now, the other fluke that you were talking about is actually a, it's a, well, it can be one of two or three different things, but it's, um, there, it's a blood fluke. And uh, you do get infected by um, paddling around in water because the larval stages of that, the, the young flukes are in snails again, but they escape the snail and are free living in the water. They penetrate your skin and then head for blood vessels somewhere and develop there. It, it's, a, it's a particularly nasty disease, and it's one of those ones that's considered a neglected tropical disease. There's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is starting to put a lot of money into these neglected parasites uh, in the hopes of developing uh, drugs for control. Thank you very much, Doug. That, that was, that's a fascinating topic. My name is Frances Schultz. And one of the things that I was wondering about is good parasites. And yesterday on CBC, for example, they were talking about a woman pediatric surgeon in Kingston who lost her fingers, and in the process of her recovery, they used leeches to take down the swelling and to get the blood to be moving into her fingers. In the Kingston General Hospital, they did this. And, I, and it is an example of a parasite being used productively for value in society. And I was wondering if there are other examples of things that are actually good parasites to have, because we've been sort of talking about the bad ones. <laughs> Excellent question. And it, it, um, you, you just you open the door, I can go and talk about maggots now. <laughs> maggots, certain kinds of maggots happen to be a passion of mine, but um, there are things called medicinal maggots, um, and they're used to clean out necrotic wounds that are resistant to um, where the, where the uh, bacteria that grow in the wound are resistant to um, antibiotics or they're in a, in a wound that is inaccessible to the antibiotics. 
And so there, there's a, a particular fly. It's a blue bottle fly, and it's they they rear its larvae in, in sterile environments, and then they put these things on the wound, and they they will they will happily eat any dead tissue. They won't touch the living tissue. And in the process of eating all of the dead tissue, they also secrete a series of enzymes that promote the growth of tissue. And so they clean up the wound and help it heal up very quickly. And it's, uh, I mean, it was an accidental discovery um, back in, well, whenever Napoleon was running around. The surgeons would find guys who had been laying on the battlefield for days and their wounds were all maggot infested, yet they were healing quite nicely. And so they, they, they glommed onto the idea that, hey, maybe we can use this, and they would do some of it. The surgeons in the Civil War in the U.S. did much the same kind of thing. So there's, there's another good parasite. And if you want to put weight on, there's a tapeworm that uh, actually makes rats fat. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. You, you, you open the door. <laughs> Hi, my name is Pat Greenlee. I was intrigued by one of the headlines when you showed the slide of... of some different uh, headlines, and one of them said from somewhere in Africa that they thought a parasite was causing epilepsy. Is that, um, could you say more about that? Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a tapeworm that um, is often found in, uh, the adult stages are found in um, dogs primarily. Humans accidentally will ingest the eggs of the parasite, and the parasite then uh, migrates to the central nervous system, at least in some cases. And then it, it develops in the central nervous system and causes pressure, and that's the, that's the epilepsy connection. And it's, it's a very serious problem in places like China and some places in India and Southeast Asia where people just kind of live with their pigs and they got dogs all over the place. And there's a couple major programs, particularly in China, to um, there is a vaccine actually that will um, kill the adult parasites in the dogs, and so they've got a combination program, integrated management program to vaccinate the dogs and then also treat the pigs with chemicals to uh, kill the developing tapeworms. Uh, in the absence of another speak uh, question at the moment. We had a rather liberal and uh, healthy discussion about the subject at the table, and Lisa Lambert ex explained to us and re uh, recited to us her experience living in British Guiana. And I wonder if Lisa could summarize what she experienced there with respect to parasites. Well, at the risk of grossing people out even more, um, I lived in Guyana, um, also known as British Guyana, but now strictly Guyana. Uh, for a couple of years in the mid-90s, and I had many of the parasites that you discussed and malaria. Um, and I had malaria for many years afterwards, after I came back. But it, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is um, sort of on what Francis said. Are there benefits to me having had so many of those parasites and tapeworms so many times and malaria? Do I have some sort of superpower now, or...? <laughs> Do I just worry about my aggressive techniques? And secondly, um, why I'm, I have malaria, so I can't give, I can't donate blood. I haven't had symptoms for more than twelve years. Um, why didn't I pass it to my kids? Um, with regard to passing it to your children, the placenta is a pretty good barrier, and not very often. There are cases where some of those parasites will 
across the placenta, but malaria is not usually one of them. Um, it's probably hiding in you somewhere, in your liver, for instance. Um, and it, it, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just pulling things from the literature because I'm not a malariologist, but oftentimes if you are um, uh, prescribed corticosteroids, uh, things that suppress your immune system, uh, you'll get a recrudescence. The parasite will come back. Did I leave something out? Is it giving me superpowers? Oh, superpowers. <laughs> oh. Um. <laughs> I think, I think uh, that's probably more better discussed at next week's uh, presentation. Uh, Doug, just one question. Um, our livestock industry has uh, evolved for good reasons the way it is. It has control of parasitism played a part in the way they we raise pigs and poultry and cattle now? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, you, re you mentioned pigs. Um, probably people here have heard of trichinella. It's a muscle worm that lives in pigs and it's transmissible to people. Um, that's one of the reasons there are laws against what you feed pigs. You're no longer allowed to feed dead pigs to your other pigs. You're no longer allowed to have that big cauldron on your farm where you stew up all kinds of stuff and feed it to the pigs. So animal health and control of parasites, there's a classic example of it. In, in, in the northern latitudes, uh, parasite control has... The first time you want to get into a parasite control pro program, you, you pick a parasite that kills things. People get concerned that you've got a dead pig or a dead cow. That's important to control that parasite. In the northern latitudes, we don't have many animals dropping dead from parasitism. But the, the smart marketers and drug companies figured out that if we can demonstrate an economic impact from par controlling the parasites, that's good for the cattle industry or the hog industry. And that's exactly what's happened over the last 25 years is a whole series of parasite control drugs have been developed for the economic benefit higher productivity, longer life. Very good. Any more questions? Well, if not, will you please join me in thanking Dr. Colwell for this fascinating presentation. Thank you. Thank you.